I'm John Bruner from O'Reilly, and I'm joined today by two guests, Drew Porosky, who's the VP of Engineering, and Gary Orenstein, who's the CMO of MemSQL, a company that specializes in in in-memory and real-time data. Welcome, guys. Good to have you on. Nice to be here, John. Thanks for having us. So uh, today we're going to talk about sort of an outlook for 2017, uh, especially with respect to machine learning. It's the hottest topic in data right now. So uh, what what do you guys see in terms of uh, trends for machine learning in 2017? John, this is Gary. I I think there's a few high level. One is, of course, we just have so much uh, more access to machine learning technology and the software world and the infrastructure world. And just to be specific about what we're talking about with machine learning, it's really applying models that take some kind of input data and, and output a prediction. Uh, and we can return to those technology details later. Um, but that ability to just deploy these models more easily than was uh, less accessible in the past, that's one major trend. Of course, another one is the rise of smart machines and all the things we have with drones and connected devices and across the internet of things. And then, you know, the third part is that we're really going deeper with machine learning than before, the concept of deep learning uh, because of the availability of compute capacity and the Mm -hmm. amount of data that we have to deal with is allowing us to uh, do this iterative processing that just, you know, was around before, but not really quite as affordable. You look at the rise of what's uh, available in the cloud and all these things combined make it a ripe opportunity for uh, machine learning to be the hot topic that it's become. Drew, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I think that's a pretty good overview of uh, what's going on with machine learning uh, at a high level. So it sounds like a lot of what's going on has to do with uh, the proliferation of data sources and and a lot more data to work with and a lot more power to work with the data. Yeah, I think when you put those two things combined, you get this opportunity or or this drive that certainly businesses have to try to improve their efficiency and their decision making. We certainly have the the consumer end of it where you know, I certainly like when I interact with the businesses that I interact with, that they didn't have to ask me the same question again. <laughs> and I certainly hope that as they build more smarts into their operational systems along the lines of machine learning and other avenues, uh, that will uh, make that, that those interactions smoother and, and uh, better customer experience. So, uh, Drew and Gary, what, what kinds of companies are you, um, are you speaking with about machine learning? I mean, where, where do you expect to see the biggest impact uh, from ML and, and predictive analytics? Well, the, this is Gary, John, the, the industries are widespread. A few that we see at the leading edge of this wave are things in the energy sector, of course, where there's large amounts of capital equipment being deployed and an opportunity to optimize that. Uh, we did a demonstration earlier this year that we call PowerStream, mm-hmm. collecting data from 200,000 wind turbines around the globe and running predictive analytics to determine the likelihood that a wind turbine might fail. Obviously, if you're the energy company, you're trying to keep them all up and running all the time. Uh, just an interesting side note, they actually measure the electrical currents coming off of these wind turbines and use digital signal processing hmm. uh, to determine what patterns they see and how that relates to specific mechanical failures of individual parts or processes in the wind turbine. So uh, that's one area. Another area would be a similar type of predictive analytics with, uh, you know, oil rigs. Um, mm-hmm. We see things in the supply chain world, which affects uh, any kind of business involved with distribution. 
and we think see things in in the retail sector as well uh, in the ability to improve the web shopping experience, which is a real-time experience that's chock full of data and events, as well as the ability to correlate with, uh, with user bases. So those are a few of the, the primary industries we see, but really this does affect uh, you know, almost every part of, uh, of business. So it sounds like a lot of these are about um, responding in real-time to highly variable uh, conditions in a variety of businesses. I think that's the most uh, interesting part of this is how we can advance uh, the, the speed of business and the speed of these interactions and the accuracy and the efficiency and uh, you know how, how can we make uh, all those processes better. Uh, there's certainly an opportunity to operate on historical data, although I think one of the catalysts for the rise of uh, interest in machine learning recently has been that you can now do it in a real-time world. Uh, you know, given enough time in computing, you can do just about anything. But only recently have people been able to apply these machine learning models in real time to critical business processes. So you mentioned that this is kind of a, a recent phenomenon, the use of machine learning um, in, in understanding business processes. For a while now, uh, the kind of big data idea, the big data mindset has been, you know, the, uh, the predominant like management imperative. Can you speak to how machine learning is is different from the idea of big data or or data science? How how should companies view you know machine learning and and integrating it into a program that might already involve a lot of you know data driven decision making, collection of large amounts of data, analysis of it? How is machine learning different from that or or a part of that? Um, I, I it's true here. Uh, I think machine learning is a lot more the the engineering side of how do you actually in practice take your data uh, from all the different sources and be able to create a, a, a pipeline that is able to deliver the predictions or do the analysis that you need in the in the time frame necessary data science tends to focus on on slightly more abstract uh you know models and kind of an ideal world if you had all the time and and there weren't any logistical details with collecting data i think when you actually go to apply machine learning in the business setting, then a lot of realities come into play about uh, being able to collect data, you know, cleanly, uh, reliably, and then being able to move it through an actual pi uh, computation pipeline and, and storage engine and being able to make it actually make a difference in your business, you know, whether it be powering dashboards or helping make logistical decisions about how different assets uh, of a company are leveraged whether it be drill bit equipment from the, you know, the energy examples or, you know, an IOT use case. So I think that's, that's a big part of, of machine learning and practice versus the, you know, data science. Got it. Got it. So machine learning is, is a, a cutting edge area right now. A lot of fundamental research going into it, uh, a lot of progress being made by academic researchers. And when we think about the companies that are using machine learning, that are implementing it, we tend to think about companies that have you know, a bunch of uh, PhD statisticians or mathematicians working on, uh, you know, uh, implementing machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. Is that required or, or can companies begin to implement some machine learning and predictive analytics without that kind of a team? Like what, what, sorts, of, uh, what sorts of skills, what sorts of teams do you need in order to start dealing with machine learning? Oh, sure. Uh, there's probably two main areas to focus on. One is the mathematical or statistical know-how to 
know which models to apply in which situations. And so for certain common use cases, there may already be well-known models that work and, and you know, you can kind of use a model out of the box um, if your use case fits as one of the well-known uh, use cases closely enough. But you always need some amount of ability to critically analyze your specific use case, make sure you're using the right models, make tweaks to the models and so forth. So that's on the, the, the mathematical side. And then there's the engineering practice of actually building a system that's reliable, that can process the amount of data that uh, is involved in the time frame uh, required by the use case. And so traditionally, these have been very separate roles. Um, you know, you have a data scientist uh, versus a operations or systems engineer who builds systems. And mm -hmm. as the various tools evolve, we're starting to see that, uh, <coughs> you know, prior, these two groups of people use different tools, uh, tended to uh, focus on different things. Uh, you'd have the data scientist using R, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but then when you need to productionize the system, uh, often it has to be rewritten in C++ or uh, some uh, systems programming language, something a little closer to the metal. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the same problem with handling data. You know, uh, often you have too much data, can't be handled on one machine. So those are the kind of problems that the, the systems uh, or operations engineer tends to focus on. And uh, as, as our uh, tooling gets better um, and uh, different frameworks uh, that exist out there uh, can, can be leveraged, then that makes it a bit easier uh, for companies to get into the machine learning space without necessarily uh, a heavy systems expertise. Uh, so it's so it's becoming a little more abstracted and it, and and possibly getting easier to sort of uh, you know import the math in a box and then have your your engineers do the engineering. Yes. So and and let's talk a little bit about some of the technologies that uh, that companies might be interested. Uh, what does your stack need to look like if you want to start to do stuff like predictive maintenance um, and uh, you know analyze uh, a great deal of data in real time with machine learning? John, this is Gary. I think there are a few high-level things people need to make sure they have covered. Uh, obviously, there's many different ways for the implementation. One is, are you able to ingest data quickly? Uh, and that's because I think today, many of the cutting edge, uh, leading edge capabilities are in that real-time world where people want to make sense of uh, what's happening in the moment. The other thing that you need to be able to do is, is can you do computation on that data very quickly? So you're, you're not going to do that if, if you have to move data around three or four places before you are able to do the computation. So uh, the ability to run uh, queries on the data, the ability to do transformations, the ability to do scoring from a machine learning perspective, having that tightly integrated into your, your systems infrastructure. And then finally, the ability to handle the load, uh, mm -hmm. to handle a large concurrent uh, you know, amount of connections, amount of users. Uh, particularly as we dig into machine learning and deep learning, we get into these more iterative processes, which uh, just require that ability that you don't lock up your system because one person wants to do one operation while another wants to uh, to do another. So those three things combine the ability to ingest data, the ability to to do the uh, the low latency computation, and the ability to handle all of that concurrently are a couple of foundational principles we see as important for the uh, the technology stack. So can you sort of walk me through the the process of building a real-time data pipeline? Like for a company that might already have kind of a, you know, a traditional uh, data warehouse 
as well as some, you know, they're, they're installing some connected devices, some machinery that might be able to produce data. Uh, what do they need to think about as they, as they build out the real-time side? Sure. I think, uh, hi, John, Drew here. Um, I think that you can characterize the different stages of the pipeline uh, or different parts, uh, can break it into several categories. The first one is usually, you know, kind of the obvious place to start, which is your, your data sources. So you need to be able to identify which data sources are important to you and be able to reliably collect information from them. Uh, in a lot of use cases, that's more straightforward. It's data is on a computer somewhere on a network. In other cases, it's a little less straightforward. Maybe you have cars that uh, have self-driving technology that are collecting data as they drive, and then, then you have to either transmit over the air or uh, capture data and then take it out of the vehicle when it uh, comes in for servicing or some mm -hmm. combination of the two. So not always straightforward, but the, you know, the first phase is identifying your data sources and making them digital if they aren't already uh, using the appropriate uh, sensors or measurement equipment. And then once you've identified your data source and you have a way to measure it and, and uh, enter it into a digital system, then the next problem is how do you get it from wherever it is uh, to wherever you're going to do computation and storage. So the, the next area to focus on is uh, message queue. Apache mm -hmm. Kafka is a very popular solution for that. And basic message queues are basically single partition. Uh, what I mean by that is it's just a total ordering of messages. And the problem is that that doesn't scale once you have a sufficient amount of events uh, or records per minute or per second, then you will overload you know, the network capabilities of one router or one machine. So Apache Kafka, I think, has been successful as a message queue because of its partitioned approach where you uh, can have multiple machines handling different partitions of the fire hose, so to speak. And that's what allows for the horizontal scaling and to be able to handle billions of events per second, uh, things on, on that order of magnitude that uh, you know a single computer and its network interface simply would not be able to handle. And so now you have your data sources in place. You have a message queue that's able to uh, deliver them from the sources. And then it's, okay, where are you delivering it to? The next part is, where are you going to do your computation? And then um, also storage. It's very mm -hmm. rare that you can just consume events, do computation, and then you don't need to refer to the events later. Mm -hmm. In a lot of use cases, uh, you want to have historical records or if, you are, if your use cases involves doing a similarity matching between new data and old data, um, you end up needing storage. And so that's where we think MemSQL really can shine in building a real-time data pipeline is being uh, somewhere where you can do computation queries. And, and as Gary mentioned, computation broadly covers transformation, feature extraction, things like that. And then also have a, a storage engine that can meet with the, the, the high performance needs. Again, the whole part of the pipeline uh, needs to be able to handle a lot of, of load. And, and that often involves uh, not having a single machine as a bottleneck, having a distributed system that is is well designed and can handle amounts of throughput that would overwhelm any one individual machine but you know the the system is designed intelligently to distribute the load and, and scale horizontally um, another technology used with doing computation although it doesn't solve the, the storage issues is uh is spark which is a, mm -hmm. a common framework where um, data coming in from a message queue can go through a series of, of transformations 
um, expressed, uh, I think Spark has support for many different languages uh, to express what kind of transformations. And then finally, uh, you have your, you've done your computations, you've uh, ideally have your data stored somewhere where you can quickly access and retrieve. And then that's what ultimately powers um, visualizations or other decision making uh, that a business does, or it feeds into application behavior. If you have a, a web app, um, you know, suggestions to a user of what they might be interested in or things like that is an example of where you can plumb the uh, predictions that are made um, or the results of the real-time pipeline. So yeah, I'd say the, the last part is basically using the data to make decisions of some kind in the real world. And with the horizontal scaling that you described, are you seeing um, most of your customers rely completely on cloud-based uh, systems or, or are some of them going with um, an on-premise configuration? There's a mix of uh, both on-premise and cloud uh, use, uh, you know, uh, businesses in this space that are setting up real-time pipelines uh, do one or the other or both depending on their use case. The on-premise installation is um, desirable in situations where security needs are very high or there's a desire to really con tightly control types of machines, the network configuration. And so on-premise on is, is still very popular these days. Cloud is a growing space that more and more companies are turning to. It has a lot of advantages uh, in terms of not having to maintain uh, various aspects of, you know, operational aspects of keeping a network of computers uh, up and running and performing well, and also dealing with provisioning if you need more computers, fewer computers. Cloud offers uh, a great degree of convenience that you don't have when uh, you're measuring, you know, managing your own on-premises cluster. Got it. Um, so, so looking ahead, uh, we we began this uh, episode with a discussion of sort of trends in machine learning in in 2017. Uh, looking out ahead in an even more generalized way, what do you see as the next phase for predictive analytics and machine learning? Um, sure, I think that uh, what we'll see. Uh, uh, in the coming years, kind of the next phase is, you know, I mentioned earlier, there was a two separate roles when you're, you're building a team or, or traditionally there have been two separate roles of having data scientists who is expert in, in mathematics, statistics, creating models and had to use one set of tools and then systems or operational engineers who know how to make things fast, who know how to make things scale, uh, but aren't necessarily experts in, in statistics or modeling. And, um, but, you know, they know how to build a system that will actually be able to handle large amounts of data and, and meet uh, latency requirements. So I think one thing we'll see in the next phase is a, a closing the gap between those two parties mm -hmm. and uh, making it more, you know, uh, possible for more use cases to have uh, one person who knows a bit about both, but isn't necessarily an expert um, or a very deep expert in one or the other, uh, be able to be effective. So kind of like a DevOps for uh, for data. Yeah, and I think it's not just about the the, the knowledge and, and pre-existing uh, solutions being able to uh, assist folks. Uh, I think it's also about having shared set of tools um, because it from just wa uh, watching developers interact over the years at different companies I've worked at, um, you know, uh, what tools you use is, is very similar to uh, spoken language. Um, and can affect kind of how uh, engineers interact and um, technic, you know, on a technical level socialize. You know, I'm not talking about personal uh, socialization, but just 
looking at each other's code, reviewing each other's code, getting ideas from each other tends to flow more smoothly when people uh, and more fluidly when people are using the same tools. And I think another thing we'll see in the next phase of, of predictive analytics and machine learning is distributed uh, storage engines moving towards also being distributed computation engines. Uh, Gary mm. mentioned earlier that a big problem with uh, that needs to be solved when you're setting up a real-time pipeline is uh, the, basically focusing on data movement. How do you reduce how often data is moved around? How are you intelligent about data movement? And the main reason data moves, well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, there's the initial movement of its source to some more centralized location. Sure. And at the end, we have the movement of you know prediction or output into some real-world application. But aside from the, the in and out, there's a lot of movement internally in the middle parts. And uh, that movement is almost exclusively happens um, either because it's moving to where the computation is going to happen or it's moving to where the storage is going to happen. And so to the extent that those two things um, can be merged or be the same system that intelligently can handle both functions, that's going to be able to greatly minimize data movement um, in general or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I believe it'll be able to reduce unnecessary data movement or optimize data movement. And that's going to make new applications possible that, that aren't before, right? When you talk real time, uh, a lot of what constrains real time is how much can you get done per second or how much can you get done per minute? Right. And, you know, the, the denominator uh, of that number is bigger the more data movement delays you have. So right. uh, shrinking the denominator is going to uh, open up not just quantitatively, you know, how many units can you process per second, but it can also qualitatively change what's possible. Um, to give a, a quick example, um, there's a little bit of an old story, but there's machine learning that tries to do um, a little bit more researchy kind of applications of, you know, for example, you look at a picture and say, is this a cat or a dog? And they notice that uh, uh, various um, machine learning scientists who studied this problem um, were not having success for quite a while. And then the, the, all of a sudden, there was kind of a, a phase shift or a sudden breakthrough. And the, that happens when uh, they were able to reach a certain amount of scale, a certain amount of data points uh, for training their models. Um, so there were a lot of advances in, in the models for the image recognition. But then the thing that ultimately was the tipping point that led to uh, being able to produce systems that can reliably identify the difference between a cat and a dog, for example, mm -hmm. uh, was just being able to have enough data uh, to train the model. And so that's an example of a, a qualitative change of hmm. prior to reaching a certain scale, um, just models could not produce accurate predictions uh, when analyzing these images, you know, to answer a basic question like, is this a cat or a dog? And then there was um, kind of a phase shift uh, that happened once we reached a certain scale. So I think that um, as the data movement problem uh, gets solved and optimized, um, we'll see new use cases that are qualitatively different than the ones we've seen so far. Right. Uh, the other thing that uh, that I think of when you mentioned data movement and the challenges there are like embedded systems, right? Things like uh, driverless cars, uh, robotics, um, you know, the infrastructure that you mentioned at the outset, things like wind turbines being able to control themselves. Uh, there's a lot of latency when you have these things talk to the cloud, right? And and if you can decrease that or, or just sort of minimize data movement in a handful of places, you could make machine learning a much more viable way to address a lot of uh, problems in the physical world. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. And there'll always be in those cases, uh, uh, particularly if you think about driverless cars, uh, ability to and a requirement to operate locally 
Uh, you could also imagine at some time taking data that has been gathered from all the other autonomous cars to learn uh, particular tips and tricks about how to be successful and, and mm -hmm. avoid problems and then you know pump that back into the, uh, the fleet itself uh, so that it gets smarter over time. So those, those things will certainly happen. Great. Well, it's, it's been wonderful to speak with you, uh, Drew Porosky and Gary Orenstein from MemSQL. They are the Vice President of Engineering and the CMO, respectively. Uh, Drew and Gary, if listeners of the podcast want to find you, see stuff that you've been writing and, and working on, where should they look? Uh, this is Gary John. Uh, you can usually find me on Twitter at Gary Orenstein. Of course, for MemSQL things, the best place to start is memsql.com. For those who are interested in giving MemSQL a try, they can start at memsql.com slash download. And Drew? And yeah, I have a, a Twitter handle, Drew Karoski. You can follow my updates on Twitter. And then also, uh, as Gary mentioned, the MemSQL blog. Even when we post to other blogs and sources, we cross post at the MemSQL blog. So I would say that's the central place to go. Excellent. Well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.